What is going on, guys? This is Brendan Burns, and welcome to The Brendan Burns Show. Join me as I interview, dissect, and share the stories of high performers who have created the life that they deserve on their terms. I sit down with speakers, professional athletes, and successful entrepreneurs from all over the world who have chosen to live a life of fulfillment and joy over status and money. In each episode, I share actionable strategies that you can implement in your life, plus inspiration along the way. So come join me for this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us today is Julian Smith. Julian is the co-founder and CEO of Practice, an all-in-one CRM for coaches. His previous venture, Breather, raised over $150 million and became a major brand in New York, San Francisco, London, and more. Julian is also a best-selling author, having written Trust Agents, The Impact Equation, and The Flinch, one of the most read Kindle books of all time. Julian has made appearances on countless podcasts and conferences, speaking about topics including the founder's journey, managing fears, and living up to your full potential. Julian, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. And, you know, we were joking about this as we were planning doing this episode, but when I used to live in New York City, I was a big breather user. So very cool company you had there. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, that was that was learning how to be a CEO by the seat of my pants as opposed to now when I actually know how to build software and I know how to run a business properly and, and so on. But uh, sometimes uh, wild things just happen out of nowhere and breather from the very beginning was one of those things. I'm glad you got to use it. I'm glad you like. Oh yeah. It was the best. I mean, I was working at a hedge fund in New York, had just quit, was trying to do this coaching business. And I was like, I need a place to meet with clients. And I wasn't right. ready for an office yet. And breather was a really cool. Uh, I love how they had, sometimes like virtual keys where you just push a button and it would unlock. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually the original idea. You Technology sometimes is like you try to connect two things that just have been sitting around, but they've never been connected before. And uh, for me, there's, it was like right around, I want to say 2013, there was this connection where like electronic locks were being put on the market on Kickstarter and they were like, you can open your house with your phone. And this was an innovative thing back then. Uh, and now there's a ton of them and they even sell them in Apple stores and, and Amazon owns Ring and like all these other things that, that you could do. But I was like, yeah, this is kind of interesting. But wait, what if I could open like lots of doors? And I, I felt that that was a super powerful idea. So I'm glad that you recognize that because that's the fundamental thing. Because if, 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 if a human needed to open that door, like one of my employees, the business would have not like not been tenable but because i get you to open the door that's free and so then i could have like 500 different spaces 200 in new york and all these things that's awesome man i I loved it i was a big breather user but i want to kind of go back in time because i know obviously you have a business now that supports coaches more but you also have this kind of coach vibe and some of this content and books you've written and if i remember correctly you you're one of your parents was a coach is that right yeah, my father was a coach. In 1979, he learned how to be a coach from uh, Richard N. Bowles, the founder of that that well that book, What Color Is Your Parachute, which is one of the best, most well-known career books ever. And uh, and so I'm one of those few people. I have a Silicon a coach in Silicon Valley today, and he's like, your father was a coach. He's like, that's very rare. Certification came out for coaching in 1993 or something, and and so. It's kind of like, it's weird and unusual to have a parent that did that. Yeah. And and how do you feel like that impacted you? Because on the one hand, obviously being in a conscious environment can be good for you. But I also know that kind of being the kid of a therapist or the kid of a coach can come with sort of like a, a over analytical, whatever. So what was, what type of coaching did he do? And, and what was the impact it had on you? Yeah. So career and executive coaching is what he did. For me, it manifested itself. I want to say positively in the sense that one of the one of the most important things that I think happened to me is that uh, my parents basically allowed me to be whoever I wanted to be. And they I, they confessed to me later that they're like worried as, as around, I wanna say probably 22 is when they probably should start being worried about who I was and how I was going. But, uh, but that came as a result of 
just me being allowed to do whatever. But the downside of that is, is that I didn't really understand what my own potential was because no one ever said, hey, you're good at this. You should do this. Or even like, hey, you should be a doctor because we're making you be a doctor. At least then there would be like a, a thing to contrast myself against. Mm -hmm. But instead, it was this vast open field. And so it took me a while. Uh, some people feel that I have done a lot in my career professionally, and I agree that I have. But I feel like I there were still some years where I wasted my time because I didn't know what I was good at and I didn't know what I should do. Mm. That's interesting. Almost too vast of an opening. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I, then I, I think one of the few things that I figured out is that I I got into a really bad startup very early. I started coding. I was coding when I was like thirteen or fourteen, mm -hmm. but I never wanted to do it professionally. But I I realized that the environment of a startup was really good. I taught myself to like code in SQL, and I already coded in C and C plus plus, and but it was never really my job. But I was like, well, this is fast moving and lots of decisions are getting made. And then I ended up uh, kind of in media tech and I started a podcast in 2004. And this is my first reason that people would ever know, uh, had ever heard my name or whatever, is because I ended up on Sirius Satellite Radio all of a sudden at, at the age of 25 with a podcast deal uh, when no one had done a podcast like basically What was ever. the show about? This is really embarrassing, and I'm I regret bringing it up. <laughs> so it, it was, so the the name of the podcast was In Over Your Head, which is the same name as my blog today. Uh, and and the show was about like if you imagine like a pretty a pretty angry twenty five year old kid, twenty five year olds are not right kids, but you get it. I uh, kind of half ranting about whatever thing would happen to be. Uh, happened to be going on and the other half was all hip-hop music and so i started the first hip-hop music podcast on the entire internet not if you include like streaming radio there were others before that but in a podcast format i was the first one and i think the reason that it resonated is because almost all podcasters were kind of like i want to say like middle-aged dads and and all the people that i met at that time like that was my first like network of kind of like professionals. I, I would go to conferences with them and and uh, ended up writing books with one of them, Chris Brogan. And, uh, but they, my, my voice to them sounded really different. And so I stood out a lot and they were like, we got to put this kid on the, <laughs> we got to put this kid on. And they put me on satellite on Sirius satellite radio, uh, one, one dial station away from uh, Howard Stern uh, when I was 25 and I had no reason to be there. Wow. What was the biggest thing you learned in that experience of being on, being on air, having that responsibility? Uh, it's a good question. I, you know, you know what it helped me distinguish. There's a lot of people that are like today that are creators. They would call themselves like maybe creator or their creator economy, or they would say that they, uh, they're media people or they're influencers, right? And so the audiences. 15 years ago were smaller, obviously. There were not like a billion people on the internet the way that there are today, just to give you a sense. But what it did, it, what this this contract made, made me do essentially is it forced me to produce three recorded podcasts, which are about an hour each per week. And all of a sudden I was like, <clears throat> I turned something that I'd like randomly started into something that was straight up a job. And all of a sudden, my passion kind of and my job had intersected. I want to say my hobby and my job intersected, and I hated it. And I burnt out on podcasting after doing about, I want to say, 150 episodes. And uh, and and people still sometimes are like, sometimes will like comment on my blog or they'll know me on Twitter or something. They'll be like, but bring back it over your head. And it's like, I am, it, it, I, I should never have connected the two maybe is, is how I feel about it today. That's, that's a good insight. I um, have very intentionally kept this show to every two weeks an episode because I can see these people that are cranking an episode a day or three a week and, and then they do all their own audio production. Like a lot of times I just take the episode and as long as nobody said anything that's horribly offensive to someone, I'm like, cool, <laughs> we've just put it out. Obviously we'll edit stuff. A little bit here and there, but um, no, that's a really good insight. Did, so did you go to college? I, I dropped out of college several times. I tried. 
Yeah. At first, I was in uh, in in, in uh, Quebec, which is where I was brought up in in Montreal. There's a distinction between like real university and what's almost called a thing called junior college. And so I dropped out of junior college like over and over and over again. And then I did it to uh, to join a startup. And then, but but again, I, I I was still like meandering for like a really long time. The the, the greatest thing that ever happened to me at that time is it, it pulled me out of my my regular job. I, I literally was like a customer service agent. I had done radio before because I, I had a radio voice. Like I'd done radio as a kid. And and so all of a sudden I had this radio show and it was like completely random from, I think probably having some level of talent, but also being at the right place at the right time. And then all of a sudden I had this internet career and all of my other friends were working the same type of job that I had. And I was quitting my job and I was going to become like a radio personality on the internet. And it was the wild west, but it's the thing that got me on a, literally on a whole other trajectory, or I might still be somewhere like there, like that today. Mm, wow. So yeah, kind of, how did you get from that experience to say breather, right? Like being the CEO yeah. of a company that's raised uh, over a hundred million dollars. Yeah. So I had, I, I wrote three books. Okay, so the trajectory goes like this: is we all these Middle East, all these middle-aged dads, and me, and some other people that are all podcasting. Social media is emerging at this time. Okay, so Twitter comes out. We're some of the first users of Twitter. Uh, Facebook, when it opens up, like we're some of the first users on Facebook. And me and a dude, Chris Brogan, who's really, really famous at this time in this world. Uh, he uh, is like, hey, let's write some ebooks about this because we were doing talks at these like local events about how to use social media to basically promote your podcast, kind of. And and we wrote these ebooks and we wrote one called, I want to say, Keep It Real and another one called Something Else. And people found them at publishing houses and they said, Let, we need a book about social media. Let's Let's tap these guys. And so I got it. We got a call or like, an email or however it happened from from Wiley back in the day. We wrote a book. We had never written a book before. We didn't know how to write a book. And within the first week that it was published, it was a New York Times bestseller. And what was and the book called? So, what's that? The, the book was called Trust Agents. Yeah, so it oh, was published. That's Trust Agents. That's Trust Agents. And so even today, I get messages from people. It's wild because it's been 13 years since the first edition of that book. But uh, in 2009, it was published. And there were no books about social media. There were almost zero. And and so all this, this stuff, I kind of take this for granted some of the time, but that's all this stuff that we had written is now used by like every brand in the world, right? Uh, but uh, we're not taking solo credit for it, but like, like somebody had to write that and come up with those ideas. And we were some of those people. And, and then this produces another crazy trajectory, which is all of a sudden, I'm like I said, by this point, I must be 28 or something. And uh, and now I have speaking gigs and, and I have no qualifications, like to be completely <laughs> clear about like how it happened. And but but I felt that I had a voice, right? Like I had been on a podcast and it had been on Sirius Satellite Radio and and people were listening to me at these tiny little free events. And so, but now all of a sudden it was like, oh, I, I would be in, in front of 10,000 people at some like marketing event. And it was just like, it, it didn't feel like it was a crazy, wild, hugely upward trajectory, but looking back on it, it really was. And I did three books like that. And then I was like, you know what? Uh, I had this great idea for a business. And then that's when I started my first venture back business and started raising money for it. Yeah. So that was kind of one of the things I was curious is, what made you move from obviously you're sort of on the ground floor of social media, speaking, podcasting, writing to yeah. pivot, pivot, not like, well, one's better than the other, but then to sort of move over to like, I'm going to be a CEO, raise capital, run a business. Yeah. You feel like, oh, okay. Now, as you were speaking, you were getting more in touch with who you really were and what you really wanted. Like what happened there to go that over from here to there? Yeah, it, it was, it's interesting. Uh, there's a few things that had happened alongside this. Uh, while we were doing podcasting, uh, I discovered uh, the power of like having an online business. Uh, and all of a sudden I had gone from making like a little bit of money and I'd figured out through affiliate marketing, like how to make just all of a sudden, like a what was a blinding amount of money for me. 
And so one of them was the power of business versus the power of even though you are speaking professionally, and, and I know some friends of mine are in the Speakers Hall of Fame, they are amazing at what they do, and it's a great business for them. But I saw the power of a business working for you. Yeah. And so that was a huge element of it. Uh, when I, uh, when you are a speaker, maybe you have a blog and that blog is working for you. And in, in a way, that blog is a business. But when you're a speaker, you are still working and doing speaking gigs. Dollars for hours, fee for service. It's, yeah. a, high, it's a high amount per hour, right? Like you could be doing $20,000 for a speaking gig, which is no, awesome. A lot of times you got to fly there. You can't do more than one a week. So it's really not that leveraged. Yeah. So I, there are people that I know that do 150 events like a year or something. Well, before COVID, right? So now I don't know where that will happen. But I, that was an element of it. And the other is that I just, in my mind, I was not going to be one of the best writers in the world or one of the best speakers in the world. And I want to, I want to aim higher than that. And weirdly, uh, the first business that I ever ran, Breather, uh, I was able to it was hard at first because I didn't really have a, a proper concept, but once I got it off the ground, all of a sudden I was one of those people. And, and I was, I want to say uh, maybe 35 or something by this point, I've raised $25 million. I've never run a business before. I had no idea how to do it. I was like, it was all kinds of people were, uh, it, it, it was, it was like, it was a business that was happening under my feet and I was just there and I did the job and I worked really hard, but at the same time, uh, it, like it was happening to me and, uh, and I don't know why I, but I, but I felt that that was worth taking a shot at even when I didn't know whether I would succeed or not. This, so this is your first business coming out of the speaking and podcasting world, you're saying? It is. It's actually, it is literally my first business okay. coming out of speaking, podcasting, and writing books. I say, I could probably keep writing another book per year if I wanted to and keep selling speaking engagements. But in my mind, I said, I had this really good idea for a business. I was also very afraid because in my mind, there was a distinction. There were two types of people. There was speakers and doers. And, and in my mind, like you were either one or the other. And I was convinced that I was a person that talked and not a person that did. I had never really operated a business before with employees for real. Yeah. So, so, so what was the business? I, I mean, that it became breather. That's 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 oh, essentially that's breather. That's that, that's, that's what it became. Song. Wow. Right. Well, what and, did it start as? Uh, first, it was spaces, and they were for like meditation. And then I was like, this is expensive. My my view at it was exactly what we're talking about, which is, uh, like it's really expensive to have all these employees in here. And it's really hard to have all these employees in here. And my, my thesis in my mind it happened by the, the, the sort of problem solving of how can I remove employees from this business? And then I thought, well, how could I get the employees to zero in each space? And if I got the employees to zero and people were willing to pay for it, then I would be like, well, that would be a really interesting business. Okay, well, how could I get this employees to zero? And this is when I connect the electronic locks to the idea of, of someone else being able to open them with an app. And I'm like, huh. And in my mind, then at that point, I'm like, okay, well, it wouldn't be like a big space. It would be like lots of small spaces. And I do some math and I'm sitting in a bar in San Francisco right after like a shitty, awful meeting with Google Ventures where, that, where I totally bombed. And I was like, something is wrong with this business, but I can't tell what it is. And I waited for my friend, Rob, who runs a business, uh, a business called VidIQ today, which is like a SEO business for video people on YouTube. And I waited, I just waited for him and I completely thought <laughs> business upside down and I came up with Breather like literally on the back of a napkin. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's just give the audience a uh, one to two sentence of what breather was. Cause obviously I used to use it. Yeah. Yeah. You know it really well. So let's That's them okay. Level. Yeah. So the way, the best, the easiest way to think, think about it is that it's a, it's a meeting room business because that's almost 95% of what it became, but where you can book spaces literally the same way that you could uh, book an Airbnb 
and they were all over the city. So often people would encounter it uh, like in their own building. And so you had an office, my, my friend Rahul Vora, who started Superhuman, it's like a well-known startup these days. Uh, he was like, oh yeah, we have two breathers in our building. That's how I found out about you. And you could, he could go down from like the sixth floor where his office was to the third floor. There were two private bookable meeting rooms there. And people at the very beginning would book them for a few hours. Then they started booking them for days, like two days for an offsite. Then they started booking them for weeks. And then they started booking them for months. And this went from 10 people that I hired to, uh, by, by the height of it, uh, going on what would have been an annual like $50 million a year run rate. It, it was it was super wild, but it started with just bookable I, I spaces. That I, contributed. I contributed. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you did contribute to it. My $40 room and my $70. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I used Breather to do some in-person workshops in Manhattan. I did a training on how to grow your Instagram. I did one on relationships. Um, yep. I, I recorded an episode of the Brendan Burns show in a breather. That's amazing. I would love to see it. Every little while I come across a YouTube video and they need like a setting, right? For their YouTube video, their sketch. And I'll see the breather on the door. I'm like, yep. Or I'll see <laughs> and a documentary because they don't have anywhere to film either. And so the documentaries will be like, it'll be really obvious that someone from my team designed it. Yeah. And then the, one of the worst ones was like some crisis. I want to say in 2016, I was on vacation and some insane member of like the far right had used it in a, for a press conference for like announcing some crazy thing that they would do. And my team found out about it because any, anyone could book this, like anyone yeah. and without, without any uh, fundamentally like quasi zero security. And and they were like, what do we do? I was like, well, you can't kick them out because it's happening live and it's being broadcast for like a million people like <laughs> streaming, but please block the logo off the door so that nobody finds out that we're associated with us. Yeah. So it, it was, it was a crazy. This, this alt-right neo-Nazi meeting sponsored by Breather. Get a, <laughs> get an office piece out with one yeah. click. This, this, this cult is sponsored by Breather. Contact are, Julian Smith for uh, to join our group. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was uh, um, the the craziest part for me. I want to say, other than like now, I know how to be a CEO. I've been a venture back CEO for ten years, so I know how to run a business. I know how to build software. I know all these things, right? But um, but the first five years of that business were me just doing like what I thought I should do. And then knowing I was on a cycle of raising money every 18 months because we were burning crazy amounts of cash. And so it was like fundraising was like 1 million and then six and then 20 and then 40 and then 40 again. And it would just go on and on and on. And I knew that if the, the business didn't succeed that uh, I would have to fire a lot of people and we would run out of cash. And somehow I was able to stay ahead of that for many years. No, that's great. Um, what do you feel like was the biggest mistake you made early on as a CEO that you now don't make in your current company? Or I was talking to somebody about this. It's a really good question. Uh, the talent that you that you have, not just you personally, but the talent that you work with, the people that you work with, are the most meaningful influence on your company. And so I was actually like, I was looking at it because I have a, I have a long list of breather employees that I sit that sits in a spreadsheet in uh, on my computer here. And I looked at them. I was looking at them the other day. I was like, who would I rehire? And who would I give a good reference to, let's say? And then who is it that like I wouldn't pick up the phone if they called, right? Because what happens when you don't know how to hire people is all kinds of things, like crazy, crazy things happen, especially in a uh, the, the type of business that we're in, right? And so I, I think the, the most meaningful thing is our business had a lot of potential and it was doing really well. So, and every little while we would hire well, but then many other times we wouldn't hire that well. And when we didn't, I didn't fix it because I was on this treadmill. And I was like, I had to accelerate the pace. And as I'm accelerating the pace, it's just like, well, we need to hit a marketing. Oh my God. Okay. Who's going to do this? Who do I know? And it would, and, and, um, and so the stakes get really, really high. 
the bigger the business becomes. Right. And so for me, I learned a lot from the founders of Stripe and from the early like real Silicon Valley people, because I did this from Canada. And they were like, oh yeah, the, the first 10 people, those are the people who derive the culture. And for me, I would say some of those decisions as to who drove the culture were good and others were not so good. And uh, that's what I focus on at practice today. Well, that's really good and resonates a lot with me, obviously, as a business owner who is often hiring and trying to set that culture and team long term. Mm -hmm. So in that vein, what advice would you give to someone in terms of how to hire better and how to build that team better? Wait longer, hire more seriously and be more thorough. Uh, read more hiring books than you think that you know. Almost everybody, uh, by the way, feels that they have an instinct, and 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 it, and it ends like this. Like this is the this is when they put like your the gravestone on the on the grave when you say like yeah I think they can do it. Like that's it. That's the death of like that person. That's the death of that's the death maybe of your business. If you're like yeah I kind of feel like they could do it. Like no, they can't do it. You didn't interview properly, and. And then if they, you bring someone to your business, now you're like vaguely dependent on them in the sense that they're doing a certain amount of work. And now you're going to be afraid to fire them. And, or even worse, they are going to hire like two or three people. And so. Who are the, also the, going to perpetuate that problem starting. Right. With them. Yeah. And, and in a business where it's, it's trying to, at the very beginning of a venture back business, it's super hardcore, right? If you, you need a thing called product market fit, like with, for example, with coaches today, we have it, like we've survived, we give a thing and it's very effective and blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, but before, uh, if, you do, if you have people that don't know what they're doing and you're all kind of trying together, it's great. But if one person's only like half on the bus, like that, that's not great. You don't want to fire them because that's going to waste like three more months. So it becomes this pressure cooker of, uh, of almost like internal pressure from the founder of the business who's trying to do a great job, doesn't know if they're doing a great job. This is like, if, if you coach CEOs, you know this, right? Like you, I'm sure you've coached some CEOs and I coach only CEOs. And so uh, if you coach CEOs, you know that they're super isolated. They don't know what's right or wrong, like, because they have no outside real perspective. And uh, often they're like that initial optimism that gets them creating the business is the same optimism that causes them to believe in people for too long when actually they should just be gone, for example. Right. Well, so, you know, what was really interesting was the way you said, yeah, I think they could do it. <laughs> what's So what's the opposite of that? When should you hire someone? What should you be saying and thinking? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is super hardcore. And if someone decides that they want to email me after this and they, they want to find out what my hiring system is, they can find out. I recently, our investor is um, uh, today at practice is a firm called Andreessen Horowitz, which is considered to be one of the best venture firms out there. Tony Robbins is one of our investors and a bunch of other like cool, like smart angel investors and so on. And, and so Andreessen Horowitz, I was, I was showing them my hiring system, uh, like I want to say the past couple of weeks, because we're uh, hiring ahead of product right now. And the woman on the phone was like, this is what I see at like pre-IPO companies. <laughs> and she was like, this is super, how do you manage this? I'd be like, well, and so if you want to read a book about it, if you're, if you happen to be interested in the subject and you're listening to this. One of the books that I recommend that almost nobody in Silicon Valley has heard of is a book called Hire With Your Head. And what it does is it tries to remove all of the emotion out of hiring yeah. and tries to turn it into evidence. And it says, what evidence is there? And it is extremely clear about how hiring is done right and done poorly. And it's a system that I've in integrated into my business because almost everyone is like, ah, I just feel, I just feel good about it. Like I've, I've heard that so many times, like it drives me, it drives me nuts. And, and I think what, what a CEO needs is a, a founder or a CEO needs is they need a certain level of certainty. And the moment that you like kind of close your eyes and like swing you're not exactly going to hit a home run by closing your eyes and swinging, which is kind of like what people do. Yeah, that's 
That's really good, man. I'm learning a lot personally around hiring myself. So it's a process. And that's the thing is you can, I'm, I'm obsessed with it now, but uh, it, it becomes this, this kind of never ending learning process because you're never going to get it hundred percent. Right. Yeah. But when you realize that it's the seats on your, it's the people on your team that make your team, which is obvious. If you look at like sports, right. It's the people on your team that make the team. That's very clear. And then the second part is, is can you motivate them properly? Let's say, right. Yeah. Uh, somehow in business, I, it, it's, uh, I think people's psychology like turns against them. Well, I guess one of the questions that I'm going to ask is obviously, you know, I think the right or like the person and then the skill set can be different things. Like if you read Bob Iger, The Ride of Lifetime, former Disney mm -hmm. CEO, and if yeah. you look at Bill Belichick or John Woodson, some of these coaches, like mm -hmm. how important is the person versus the coach? And sort of like, let's say you have someone who's talented, but not executing have you ever had someone where you move their role or you had to pour into them and then they turn around? Or do you always, when you see that kind of like low performance, you just. Yeah, it's actually, it's interesting that you say that. I, the reason that I'm reviewing uh, the uh, people at Breather, all of the employees, there have been like, there's been hundreds over time, not all of which I've directly interfaced with, right? But uh, I was actually reviewing whether I have ever successfully turned anyone around. And I'm actually not through the list, but I discovered that it is actually very hard to turn someone around. And, but it, let me tell you how it begins. When you, when you are able to turn someone around, it has to begin with the person's motivation. And you learn the person's motivation by having a conversation when they start with you. And the conversation is like, what is it that brings you here? Like, what is it that you get up for in the morning and what is it that you want to achieve and let me help you do that if you don't know what their motivations are because often you might just assume or you might just sit them there and be like hey do the work but if you do not know what the person's motivation is why they are doing the thing that they are doing why they get up in the morning then you will never be able to turn them around because you don't know how and you don't know what it takes yeah that's good man um so, you know, I, I know we're kind of reading your bio. You, we talked a lot about how you speak on topics such as the founder's journey, which we're definitely talking about here. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. But you've also talked a lot about managing fears. And I think the flinch obviously mm -hmm. talks about that. So what got you interested in talking and writing about fear and high level before we dig in? What would you say to people who have challenges managing their fear? Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so the context of this book, okay, the flinch when I wrote it. Uh, I had written one book and then uh, Seth Godin was was publishing a set of like, almost like an experiment with Amazon. And this was in, I want to say 2011. He's publishing six different books. Uh, and one of them is uh, the book that uh, Seth and I worked on and a little bit that Chris worked on that is called The Flinch. It's a very, very short book. If you Google it, you can find out about it. If you, you go on YouTube, actually, you can actually just search for the, for the flinch. And there are tons of videos talking about it. And uh, the, one of the reasons it became so popular is because it was free on Kindle for a really long time. So whenever people got Kindle at Christmas, they would download like the Bible and the flinch and probably like not that much else because almost nothing was free. But Godin had done a deal with Amazon to make this book perpetually free, which is what we wanted. And uh, so I write it and what is happening at the time is I'm realizing that I want to write a short, powerful thing that changes someone's mind about something. And uh, at the time I'm doing a long walk, uh, which is about, I want to say uh, 600 miles or so. And I do it in 30 days across Spain starting in France, and it's called the Camino de Santiago. It's like it's a very old religious pilgrimage that lots of people do for non-religious reasons, right? And so me and my fiance start in, in France, on the edge of France, and we travel across Spain, walking about 30 miles a day for up until we get to the Pacific, uh, the Atlantic Ocean. And so while I am doing this walk, which is insanely difficult, by the way, but it's really cool, and you should look it up, um, uh, this idea for this book comes to me. 
which the thesis, the thesis of which is why is it that people say they want something and then do not do that same thing? So what that is, that's the sort of eternal question. Why did you, you said you wanted something. If I asked you what you wanted, you would tell me often pretty clearly what it is you wanted. And then you would systematically every day not do this thing that you really, really cared about, that you yourself said you care about. And by the way, throughout this process, you didn't change your mind. You still want it, but you can't do it. And so we wrote a book about the idea as to why that is. We, we title it The Flinch. And the, as I'm writing this, Godin is, who's a, he's a famous, super, one of the most famous marketing authors there are, Seth Godin, who you probably have yeah, heard of. Yeah, I listened. I, mean, I actually have a funny uh, story of me and him personally where I emailed him and he wrote me back. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I know. Yeah, I love to hear your story. It's, yeah, so basically he's, he's, writing, he's writing with me back and forth as he's editing this thing. And he's like, this is pretty good, Julian. But he's like, do you, do you want this book to be good? Or do you want to be in awe of what you have written? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know how to do that, man. But I keep editing and I keep trying to make it better and better and better and better. And then when it's published, turns out it really is. Because he says, he also says, it's one of the most visceral things that you will ever have an opportunity to write. You'll never have a chance to write a book this visceral ever again. So you got to like crank it to 11. And uh, so the book is super short. It's like, it's got to say under 20,000 words. So you can read it in like an hour on a plane. But that is the idea is it's supposed to evoke in you this feeling. And actually it's coaches that resonated a lot with it and, and teenagers. And they would be like, oh, I want to share this with my team. Like, like my my uh, football team as in the European football team, mm -hmm. or I want to share it with these people, or I want to share it with my church, or I want it, or I, I read this when I was a teenager and it really influenced the, the way that I make my decisions. And it just kind of kept happening perpetually. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I was, uh, it was like a, a I was like a mini self-help guru because I had written this thing and, uh, and it, it, it's actually still continuing today. So it's, it's a, it's a weird, even though it's over 10 years ago, people still email me about it, which is nice. And they're like, this book changed my life. Can I translate it into Japanese? I'd be like, sure. And they would go out and they would do that. Wow. If you had to summarize kind of the one big takeaway. I don't want to discourage people from reading it, obviously, but for the listeners now who are looking for a, an actionable tidbit to help them actually do the thing or get over the fear or not flinch, whatever that would look like, what would you say? It's so short that they should read it and they can find it for free, but <laughs> 38 pages, right? That, the, the essence of the idea is, is uh, you have an instinctive animal uh, uh, risk management and fear management system in your brain. And it uses the analogy of a boxer and it says people that know how to succeed know how to take punches. They know that they're going to have to take punches and they learn how to take punches well. And that life is like this. And that most people never learn how to take punches. And most people don't know how to take punches well. They flinch back when they are hit or when they think they're going to be hit. When in fact, what they should be doing and what the training teaches you is that you should flinch, but forward instead of back. And that's the essence of what the book is. And it's what it tries to teach you. I spoke to like uh, a self uh, self defense uh, people. I spoke to the uh, to a, a tremendous amount of people that uh, whose job it is is to protect high uh, risk individuals, right? Like bodyguards and and uh, and self defense uh, trainers and other things like this. And there is like a consensus that 
people have an animal reaction to risk and that that is out of touch with, with how the modern world works. That's good, man. I like that. And, uh, obviously you want to encourage the listeners to go find it or buy it or read and read it. It's 38 pages. Um, (laughs) go do it guys. Mm -hmm. But yeah, man, I want to talk about your latest venture now and what's going on. You know, I'm a coach, your dad's a coach. sounds like you either do or have done some coaching in addition to receiving it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been around coaches my whole life. Right. And and so uh, I, I was lucky to have as friends, like a lot of well-known coaches on the internet and well-known coaches in this world, like, like out there in the world, not on the internet. And, um, and I just knew that it was an opportunity. There's a lot of uh, little coaching software businesses out there, but I knew that none of them were really built by software people. And it's really obvious when you look at it. And then I had started my own practice. And I knew a lot of people that started their own practice and they had, um, they had tried to like cobble together a bunch of different things. Like they might use Notion and Calendly and all these other things. And so we just built a business around that. It, it, going back to exactly what you said, my father was a solopreneur, right? He was out there and he was the main breadwinner for my family. And he was out there meeting people and trying to uh, uh, have a, co- a coaching relationship with them. And there were lots, there, there's actually like millions of people like there, like this out in the United States, not all coaches, but consultants right. and, and designers. And they're, they're just, they're freelancers. Right. Yeah. And so like, we're just super motivated back to this whole idea of a team. Like we're just super motivated by this idea of the underdog people that, uh, that don't have a team. Right. Because I discovered a gigantic difference when before when I was a freelancer, because I was I wrote books and I wrote them at coffee shops and I didn't have any employees and I ran my business by myself, but I didn't really even know how to build people. Right. And I had no idea what kind of entity I needed to create or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, then all of a sudden I had a million and a half bucks that I had raised in order to start Breather. And all of a sudden I was like, wow, your team is super powerful when you have access to one. But most right. people don't. And so we dealt, the way we'd like to think about it at practice, which you could look it up if you want, it's at practice.do.do, is... Wow, uh, yeah, .do now, that's a new one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing trying to renew the domain. Uh, and uh, the way that we look at it is we're their team. And so that's like a super motivating... What you need at a business is you need alignment. And you get alignment by people that are similarly motivated and that want to build something for a certain type of person and they're motivated by doing that. And that's like a really compelling thing for a team to come together with every day, right? And uh, I think it's even truer when those customers are, um, when they're dependent on you because they don't have a team of people. They wish they had like an executive assistant or something, but they can't afford an executive assistant. And so we're their team and we're their executive assistant. And that's what we do all day. And, And I talk to coaches these days, I talk to coaches all day, literally. Yeah, for like for product and feature design and everything. Yeah, like we uh, everything that was built was built as a result of talking to coaches before we built it. Then today we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of customers. Right, it's gotten it's gotten obviously much bigger. We raised ten million dollars in that round with Andreessen and Tony, and uh, and it's still growing. It's growing really quickly, and so all that we do is we get on the phone with coaches. We're like, why is this working for you? What do you want? What's the thing that you you would like this to, uh, to to do? What is it that it doesn't do yet? Why is it confusing to you? Because coaches are also all kinds of ages. They go from people coaching on social media and they're 20 yep. to people coaching on your second career and they're 75 years old. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. all kinds of, it's like, I don't and know. Sometimes there's a coach who's 70 who's been like your dad. You know, we come across that uh, not sure. as often, but so yeah, out of everything that practice offers, what do you get the feedback on that's the most beneficial part for that? The most important thing is that people say for us actually is the fact that they that they get one unified interface means it simplifies their life. Mm-hmm. That's the most important thing. Because when you have when you're a solopreneur, you have no time. Right. And so because you have no time, you're like, wait, what did I I wrote over this on note over here? And what day did I last invoice my client? And I don't know. And they have this package for 10 sessions. How many have they booked? I don't remember. So it's like there's an endless amount of kind of background cycles in your brain that are spent managing all this stuff. 
and our thing is just like 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 software is really good at this stuff yeah right and so so to me and 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 personally like like I, I know that I could raise a lot of money. I know that I can build a business. I know how to build software. I know how to do all those things now. And there are people that want to build a business and they do want to have customers that are $100,000 a year. Like Breather had million dollar customers, for example, right? Like people would come in and, and businesses would spend a million dollars on our, on our spaces per year. And here it's just like, I want to, I want to serve people for 30 bucks. Like, I just love that, right? What, what because, about like, yeah, no, this is, I, I totally see the case, obviously. I, I'm just curious, like, let's say someone like me wanted to use this and I have a team of coaches. You just get like one account per person on my team? Theoretically, we should be able to, and later we will build a business with other coaches underneath. But today we exclusively serve a single person. So, so yeah, over time, what you're talking about is right. That's exactly what we will do. Yeah, we'll I mean, obviously we're in the minority. I'm in the minority of coaches of like more like running a coaching company. You know, I'm not like a one-to-one. -one That's it. And there are people that have, for example, in coaching, it's an increasingly popular thing where they there's like one, they might've been a coach or they might just be a business dude. And underneath them is like 10 coaches and they serve enterprise customers, gigantic enterprise customers. And this, and then there's one, there's gigantic ones that are like better up or close and they serve people. And those people, those people get paid about like something like $65 an hour. Right. But the rate for coaching is actually way higher than that. And I and, coach and, a lot of those people on how to build their own businesses. Yeah, exactly. You know, not right. have the better health so, leads and then make, you know, a 10th of what they could. But actually, I was talking to the head of the International Coaching Federation, I want to say last month, and she was expressing, like, coaching is is, is uh, growing insanely fast, and that uh, even today, by the standards of these large platform companies like BetterUp, uh, there is a need for 30% more coaches than there already are just for dem the demand that exists today. Well, it's become so accepted. It's not taboo. People see exactly. the value in it now. I mean, COVID alone with all the mental health crises. When I go on yeah. TikTok, it's like all these mental health, get coaching. Dude, yeah, hugely. Yeah. 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 Which I think There's is There's a gigantic number of these people now, right? And so it's actually like super fascinating because to me, this is like direct peer-to-peer -peer learning, right. right? That's essentially what people are doing. Like when people come to uh, their, when they're clients of mine, I've been a CEO of venture back businesses for 10 years. They've been a CEO for two years. They're like, oh my God, what do I do? I had a coach, but my coach was more on a therapy side at, at Breather mm -hmm. than on the, I have been a CEO for a long time right. uh, as a coach. And so what you ideally want is you want someone that's in your corner that is not invested in the outcome, right? Because the people around you are often invested in the outcome. Sure. And so like when you can get that direct peer-to-peer -peer learning, it's just another word for peer-to-peer -peer learning coaching, honestly. I uh, it it I think that it, it accelerates people traje trajectory a lot. But like like your point, like it was super taboo and like, oh, you've got a therapist, or like yeah, eh. oh he sees no one is succeeding sees at the highest levels <laughs> by themselves. Yeah, of course not. Yeah. And now it's like taking the sort of like mafia out of it of like the paypal mafia it's like oh i know peter Thiel, i know elon musk like we'll sort of like knowledge share with each other to like no like i can come from not having certain relationships invest in that find yeah. someone who is, can consult or coach me on that process yeah and as a matter of fact it, i happen to know because i'm 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 quite close to the center of silicon valley that even those people that you were talking about the founders of paypal had coaches yeah they had coaches they, too yeah for sure right? Yeah. So like, it's, they're not out there just, there's this myth of this super genius, right? Yeah. And don't even like, some of these people are incredibly smart. Elon Musk is very smart. Peter Thiel is very smart. I don't agree with them on everything, but they're incredibly smart and driven. I'm reading the book, the founders about them right now. Yep. And, uh, uh, but uh, they're by and large, not succeeding by themselves. Okay. Steve Jobs had a coach, right? Like you don't hear about these things, but they do. And so I'm happy that this is becoming kind of more of an understood idea. No, I, it, it's so, I love it. And I've benefited so much from it. And I, uh, 
just uh, wrote a nice check to uh, one of my coaches this week for uh, $48,000 paying full <laughs> for uh, the next year of coaching with them. And I'm happy yeah. to, because they, I get so much value out of it. So, yeah. It's interesting. You know, you, it's, you really do learn this. This is one of the things that we learned by experimenting in the early days of our business. You have this thesis in, in Silicon Valley. It's often a case. You're like, I'm going to remove the middleman and I'm going to make things more affordable and they're going to be better. Cause that's, that's just how, how we work in Silicon Valley. Like well, this is what we do. We're going to make it cheaper. We're going to make it more affordable. We're going to remove the middlemen. Right. That's why early, early on, like an Uber was super, Uber X was super affordable because it could be, you just removed all the people in the middle. Right. Airbnb. Oh my God. It's like $50 a night for like an, uh, a thing in the early days, this is the case. But what I discovered is actually that if you try to make coaching really cheap, some coaches are very affordable when they're starting out. But if you make coaching really cheap, it does not work because there is no commitment. Yeah. It's weird. And that, that, that weird, it's, it, it's, I, it makes me uncomfortable. I would love for it to be $5 or whatever an hour and find a way to do that. But it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, we even see uh, a lot better results when people commit more financially upfront rather than breaking it down over the months. Yeah. And so... Um, obviously not as much in B2B setting where the company is writing a check for the, yeah. you know, head of, like I'm coaching head of product right now at a company. Um, yeah. but with the individuals more like B2C small business owners, when I, when I lean in, I'm like, Oh, can we do it monthly? Well, yeah, we can, if you want, but I'll just be honest with you. When people <laughs> write the check and go all in, this is what typically happens. So it's up to you. Yeah. 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 The only reason that I run a retainer without a contract is because my the CEO coaches the CEOs that I coach will like their problems aren't going away, and they're currently being crushed by their problems, and they're going to run out of out of money in I want to say twelve months or fifteen months or something, and they need to execute on that. So I know that they're not going to leave, right? right? But in another situation, you would totally want that commitment to occur so that the person felt psychologically uh, ready to change. I've, I've actually almost added in our forms and my forms, because I have a practice account, obviously I use that as one of the coaches. Uh, are you prepared to change the way you do things as like one of the preconditions of like sending me a request? Because if not, like what you the hell that, are you doing? Like before they're a client or once they've signed up, but before you start coaching them? I, 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 I do, I should do it. I'm saying I, I want to change this. And I think I will to like, are you prepared to change the way you do things? Or how committed are you from a one to a 10 and literally have them put it in the box so that they can uh, uh, be confronted with the fact that they can't keep doing things the way that they have. Yeah. But, but would you say, cause I love that. I just wrote that down. I'm thinking, do I put that in like my intake form with a prospect or yeah. do I, put I that's that what I would do. Yeah. yeah, you put it before you even get on a call with them to see what's up. But who's gonna? Who, first of all, who's gonna write no? Okay, but second of all, the fact that you're presenting it to them, they're like, okay, well, uh, okay, I guess I do have to change. But and I, I will say that there's this other thing that happens, which is that I'm as a coach, and I think probably it's the same for you, pretty in demand, right? Like, and so I can get on a call and be like, yeah, no, 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 no. And then be like, I didn't vibe, and and I can I can say no, and it's fine. I, not every coach can do that, but maybe even someone who is just building their business would benefit from like that type. It, what one of the things that I often say, I when if someone is a is one of our clients of practice, I do a twenty minute chat with them. Be like, how's your business going? Like, what is it? What do you need to improve? Talk to me about it. Let me see if I can give you some feedback or whatever. Right. And, and one of the things that I almost always say to people, and I think this will this will be like, this will resonate with you, is they need to change the power dynamic between the coach and the client. Oh yeah, that's like- almost Always, huge. they're like, wah, yeah. wah. Yeah. When they should be like, they should be more like shutting the door rather than opening it super wide. Yeah, accountability, frame, leadership. Mm -hmm. If you start like that, then how are you gonna call them out, hold them accountable? you know, bring down a hammer when appropriate. I told, yeah, that's. Transformation is hard, right? Like yeah. people don't, they, it, 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 you know, I hate talking about this stuff because it's become such a cliche. Writing that book, Flinch, was, was tough. One of the reasons it was tough 
is talking about a cliche idea that everybody kind of understands, but in a way that really hits people super hard. And that's actually really tough. But when you when you get down to it, you're talking about cliches, but you have to hit people with them in new ways that resonate with them. Yeah. And that's a challenging thing to do, to change someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's, this is good, man. Um, this has been a great conversation. Uh, and I want to thank you for coming on. Obviously, I want to give you a chance to share the links and more information about practice and anything else. But before we get into that, I mean, anything just kind of from this conversation to summarize, like the listeners out there, what would you say, you know, the founder's journey, maximizing your potential, overcoming these fears, you know, Tim Ferriss always says, if you could take out a billboard for free in Times Square, what would you put on it? So kind of your billboard to my listeners right now. I think for me, the, uh, the thing that resonates with me the most is, is, uh, get clear about what you really want and then actually like structure your day that way or structure your environment in that way. I'm, I'm a big believer, especially having analyzed it for a long time, read a ton about it and come to some essentially fundamental conclusions. Like people are animals. They may not like that they're animals. They may think that they're better than animals, but they, they are animals. And we just respond to the stimulus. But the good thing about where we are is that we can design the stimulus that is around us. Like you're in a house, you can design the house the way that you your environment is. If, if if for example, one of the things that if you if you ever hired a fitness coach, one of the things that they say is like, just keep the fucking food out of your house, for example. Right. And and I think people are often making or allowing choices to be put in front of them that shouldn't be put in front of them at all, right? Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of willpower, for example, to go to a bar and to be like, I will take I will take water. Everyone's like, well, I'm like, why? You're just like, I will take water or whatever it is, whatever your version of that is. And so uh, it is second set, taking a second look at all of those things is, is an incredibly helpful way to impact the way that your life is going to go. Yeah. That's good, man. I like that. Um, Julian Smith coming on the show, college dropout, three-time author, raised $150 million for Breather. And when they were doing millions of dollars in revenue, I, I paid at least That's several better. hundred. I probably paid yeah. a few thousand Thank you. Thank you. into that yeah. business. There you I go. couldn't have done it without you. Couldn't have done it without the Brendan Burns. We did. We actually had, I'll tell you, in a breather room, Freddie Mitchell. You can look him up. Mm-hmm. He played a uh, wide receiver on the Philadelphia Eagles. Yep. A big, big pass to send the Eagles to the Super Bowl. Played in the Super Bowl against the Patriots. Me and Freddie did an episode of the Brendan Burns show in, uh, he came from Philly to New York and we did it in a breather on Fifth Avenue in Midtown. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I would love to, I'd love to find out what space it is. I, I, it's, it's great that they have stories like this. Thanks yeah. for telling me. Yeah, no, there was this breather space, um, on like fifth Avenue and probably 50th or something. Um, wow. I have some of these emails here. Uh, thir- 347, <laughs> 347 fifth Avenue. 340. Yeah. I, that, I, I remember that address. There was I a bunch probably, you had a bunch of different space, probably photos right there. Yeah. Hold on. Check yeah. this out. There you go. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have been there. I know that space really well. That's so funny. Well, hey, on this one. <laughs> <laughs> but dude, um, thanks again. And let's just do a recap. Practice, give the website, how people can get yeah, it. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So you can, if you want to if you want to check out practice, you can do that at practice.do. Uh, I can spontaneously come up with a code here. Uh, Brendan, if you feel like it, I'll give you uh, a month uh, for free. So you can try it out. Then, uh, if you want to check out, uh, breather, which still exists, you can it's at breather.com really simple. Uh, look up the book, the flinch. If you're interested, uh, I never charge for it. You just find it in lots of different places or find YouTube videos about it. If you feel like it on YouTube, I've been, uh, interviewed about it a lot or people talk about it a lot. And, uh, just in general, I I'm out there all over the place. Julian Smith, easy to find, check me out and send me an email if you want to. Julian Smith, you're the man. Great episode. Thanks again for coming on the show. 
Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. If it's your first time here, please make sure to subscribe on the Apple Podcasts app or in Spotify. Also, please leave us a rating or written review. This helps others learn about the show and spread the word to new and more people. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.